16 verses. That's found on page 1135 of your Pew Bibles with more than a strong encouragement to keep your Bibles open once we read through the text. But as a little bit of a reminder, we are working through 1 Corinthians, kind of highlighting that theme of somewhat what we just sang about, uh, that call to holiness and purity, that there are worldly standards, worldly ideas about uh, what it means to live in this world, and, and when those enter into those church, it can really affect things, and how we are called to live a different lifestyle. So, tonight, picking up where we left off last week, we start at chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Says, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as they are, they are as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wanted to lay a little bit of groundwork based on what we had done last week just to kind of get us into this text. As we remember from last week, the major theme was to glorify God with your body. Remembering that we were bought with a price, that our very bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And we highlighted that at that time, many people divided spirit and body. And we talked about how the spirit was seen as good, what we should be entering into and focusing on, and the body being a negative thing. And in light of that, I highlighted the two ways that people would respond. The one response to seeing the body as something unimportant and temporary was to go ahead and indulge because it didn't matter anyway. And that's what we mainly looked at last week, people that were willing to indulge. But I also highlighted that there was another group of people that saw, the, since the body is meaningless, to therefore try to escape the confines of the body, to not be controlled by your bodily desires, but to control those through fasting, through prayer, and through abstinence. And that becomes an important setup for this week. Because what we look at today has to, continue to, has to continue to be seen under that broader umbrella of glorifying God with our bodies. Recognizing, again, that we were bought by the blood of Christ and every part of who we are, body and soul, belongs to Him. And that that should make a difference in the way that we live our lives. But, based on the discussion that we continue to see... While we saw there were many in that one camp of uh, just indulging, there also seemed to have been plenty in the other camp that were willing to deny the body or call people to that. And that's where we're going to see Paul starting our text. We're just going to work through the text, rereading it, going chunk by chunk. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to get through everything. But let's go ahead and start with verse 1. It simply says, Now, Concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So first of all, we're kind of entering in a new section here where in general, having kind of brought up a number of ideas, Paul is now going to specifically address things that the church had asked of him in another letter that we don't have. They had written to him, he had responded, and so now we're seeing this is something that they wanted to know about. And what they wanted to know about was what I had just introduced. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. There's some difficulty in translating that and making some decisions about it. Either this was an idea that they were suggesting, or it was kind of a question which is kind of saying, Paul, based on what you just said, are you saying that we should have no sexual relations at all, that we should be completely abstinent at all times, even within marriage. Is sex so bad, what you were just talking about, that we should fight against it, deny it, and completely be abstinent about it? That, in many ways, is the question now that Paul's going to answer. They've asked it, and he's going to try to address it. And he begins to address it in verse 2. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So to the question, should we be totally abstinent? Should we deny that bodily desire of humanity? The short answer is no. Because of temptations, you should have, 
and that should be read as have sex with your spouse. I'm going to use a borrowed illustration here. How many of you have ever set fire in your home? Let me add this another question. How many of you have a fireplace in your home that you've used? Okay, quite a few more. And the person who made that original illustration used that as an example of sex. Fire in your home? No, you would never just light a fire in the middle of your your living room. It would burn the house down. But in the proper context of a fireplace that has protections around it, that's a good thing that warms you and can be a delight to watch. And he used that analogy to parallel it to sex. In its proper environment, it is a good thing. Outside of that environment, it can destroy lives. And the point of Paul that he's making here is an ongoing, what we need to see, this is an ongoing forbidding of adultery. All sexual acts outside of God's design between one man and one woman in a committed marriage relationship. It prohibits all premarital sex, all polyamory, all forms of idolatry. But is that a pretty low view of marriage? Well, if you need to have sex, you might as well get married, so that's what it's for. And if you only look at this text, it might feel that way. But it does have to be seen in the broader context of other things that Paul talks about in marriage. And it's not just saying, well, get married so that you could have sex, but that sex is an important part of marriage. And that's where he goes next. Uh, let's continue by looking at verses 3 and 4. Yep, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. And what, what did I miss here? Right. So, two things. Number one, that's in quotation marks because either that's what they're saying or they're asking the question, is it good? So that's the underlying question that's being presented or the statement that they are making that Paul is now building off of. And he's going to get to a little bit more. There's, there's another answer that's, that is coming up as well with that. So I'll get there hopefully. But no, to be clear, he's not presenting this as the fundamental argument. It is good. He's saying, you have said it is good, but now I'm addressing and answering that. Okay? Okay, verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. When we hear that, what jumps out at you? What stands out, or, or what do you? Right. 
Yeah. Well, and that is the issue, but he, he's actually saying, you're not, your body isn't yours, it's your spouse's. And your spouse's body isn't theirs, it's yours. And to me, I think that's shocking to our modern ears in a lot of ways. And I think so because there's probably two different ways of looking at that. Uh, one way, which is pretty modern, is kind of that, well, well it's, it's my car, it's my body, it's my house, I can do whatever I want with it, which is very possessive and controlling. You know, it's I own it so I can control it. Another way of looking at it, though, is, well, this is your car. This is your body. This is your house. You are responsible for taking care of it well. And that's more what Paul is talking about. And this is building off of what Mike was just saying. Um, <clears throat> in Genesis 2.24, the fundamental call to marriage, when God unites Adam and Eve shortly after creating Eve. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And building on that idea in Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, Paul says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And so this is that higher view of marriage that I was talking about. And instead of this saying, well, your body's not yours, it's mine, and therefore I can tell you what to do with it, it's an invitation to say, well, I need to care for you. I need to love you, I need to take care of you as I would take care of myself and love my own body, just as he says in uh, Ephesians 5. It's not an invitation to abuse, it's an invitation to care. Now, I think that's what stands out to our modern ears. But in that statement as well, in verses uh, 3 and, and 4, more likely 4, what might have stood out to the original hearers, the people from Corinth? What might be surprising to them? And so what would surprise them in that? Exactly. Mike says, the man is supposedly in charge of everything, and he's saying, you're not. And it would have been very shocking, actually. They would have been very comfortable with the phrase, the wife's body is not hers, but it belongs to the husband. And they would have liked to stop right there. But in a very shocking ways that was very countercultural to the time, Paul continues that saying, and the husband's body is not his own, but it belongs to his wife. And so there's a lot of um, kind of unexpected radical equity in this text that would have been a surprise to them in that day. Sort of brings it to his points to a head in verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
That's somewhat wrapping up the, the fundamental question of is there any place then for sex? And he's saying yes. Sex in marriage is good. It is to be enjoyed. It is to be expressed as an act of love and care for the other spouse, remembering that your body is a temple of the Lord and it is to be used to glorify God. Sex is a part of that in marriage. But then, anticipating maybe some further questions or some misunderstanding of that, Paul goes on because you could say, all right, well, does that mean that everybody has to get married? Are you saying that, therefore, there's an obligation? And that's where he continues. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all of you were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am myself. What are we learning about Paul there? He's single. He's unmarried, possibly widowed, but he is a single celibate man. And in light of this, if you were to ask Paul, Paul, in your opinion, do you think people ought to get married or stay single? What would his response be? Stay single. Be like me. Now, why might Paul say that? Devote his Exactly. Paul is all about everything that I am is in devotion to God. And in some ways, it's good that I don't have to be distracted by caring for a spouse or a family. I can give all of my attention, all of my energy to God and his church and developing it. I think Paul, of almost any character of the Bible, epitomizes that deep, deep desire. So then why doesn't he command it? Stay single. He says, each has different gifts. He's recognizing that that some have the ability to remain and stay celibate, building the kingdom of God, and others don't. And that some have the ability, the calling to love a spouse, to serve a family, to have children, and quite frankly, other people don't have that gift. Is either one better? I see some head shaking. No. Now let's, before we answer that though, let's, let's be honest about something. I don't know if the church has always projected that. I think there has been a certain sense where people that are single feel ostracized from church. That they are a little bit less than, that the church is built for and encourages marriage and families and celebrates that, but doesn't celebrate single people quite as much. And some commentaries on this text highlighted that maybe that's something that we need to be working on as a church, is making sure that singleness is recognized and celebrated as a gift that people have, recognizing and and praising the gifts that they are able to bring. But no, neither one is better. And it is important to to celebrate both. Um, Singleness is fine as long as you remain 
celibate, which gets applied to the next couple of verses. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. He then says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for you, for them, to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he says unmarried people, uh, which could mean widowed, I guess. Uh, But the principle is the same. If you are unmarried or if your spouse passes away, he's kind of, can you get married again? Paul says, maybe be single. But if that's too hard for you, if you don't have that gift, yes, you certainly may, as a widowed person, get remarried. And then he continues to other practical issues somewhat related. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband shall not divorce his wife. This is one of many passages in Scripture that talks about the issue of divorce. What if we're not happy in marriage? What if it's not fulfilling our needs and our desires? And Paul speaks against it, making it very clear that this is the Lord speaking, and he's talking about Jesus, likely making references to things that Jesus said, like in Mark 10, uh, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And most likely, this is both of those statements being a challenge to the cheap and easy divorces that we see today and that was a part of their culture back then. Uh, For whatever reason, you just present a certificate of divorce, I'm not happy, I don't like things anymore, I just want to be done and walk away from the marriage. And again, this is reiterating the idea that marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment of love and loyalty, and it should not be a bond broken lightly. And then he gets into more specifics. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. It says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. First, let's look at that parenthetical statement. He says, I, not the Lord. So this is Paul talking here. But that leads to the question, does that mean that this is not as authoritative authoritative now? That we could kind of put this comment to the shelf and this is less important. This isn't really, you know, statement of God. This is just Paul giving his opinion. Is that the truth? It's kind of a tough question in some ways, right? But the short answer is no, that's not true. All scripture is God-breathed. And so uh, 
while he was specifically quoting Jesus in the last statement he was making, what he's saying now is, I'm no longer quoting Jesus. I don't know that Jesus addressed this specific issue. So I want to make clear that, that I'm not quoting him anymore, but that doesn't mean that what Paul is saying here is no longer authoritative. This is the Word of God, and this is the answer to the particular issue. And, and what is this issue? Well, it's acknowledging the fact that there were probably two people that got married at the time, both unbelievers. But then one of them becomes a Christian. And now they want to know, in this marriage where we are unequally yoked, using other language of Scripture, should I, do I have to, divorce my unbelieving spouse? Should I cut off this relationship if they aren't going to be a Christian? And the answer to that is no. Certainly not by rule or necessarily. And the reason is in verse 14, he says, the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse. It sounds like a very challenging statement as well. What does that mean? Does that mean that if you are married to someone and then you become a Christian, that that other person is saved regardless of their faith? And no, that's not what it means. Uh, the word holy here is that term set apart, uh, sanctified, uh, it's used and defined or translated as saint in other parts. And it's not saying that they become holy, but the best understanding I had from the commentaries I read is they are exposed to what a holy life looks like. And therefore, they in some ways are set apart. They get the opportunity to see what a life in relationship with God lived out looks like by watching you. And they get to learn from that, and there are benefits in that, just as our baptized children have benefits from being encouraged in the Christian community to know God and to serve Him. And that's what he talks about as well, is that their children, too, are, are exposed to this. And so they have that opportunity to be different, to be set apart from the rest of the world because they see in your example what a relationship with Christ looks like and hopefully one day they might get one over. So that answers, well, do I automatically walk away from that relationship? But now he asks that question from the other side. What if they want to leave me? And so that gets addressed in verses 15 and 16. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So again, in the unbelieving spouse, they says, you know what? Your faith is too much. I'm done with this marriage. I'm going to walk away. And Paul says, okay, let it be so. You don't have an obligation to constantly pursue that and in other way of saying that a lot of people believe Paul is saying you therefore have potential permission to remarry again if you were abandoned by an unbelieving spouse that you're not enslaved to that relationship and so that's what he is addressing there um, and he says it's because there's no guarantee that you're going to bring that person to salvation um, 
Go ahead, Lawrence. Yes, Muslims are unbelievers. It doesn't say, so uh, Lawrence asks, so the wife can't save him? She certainly can. And in fact, Paul would say, as far as you're concerned, stay in that relationship and try to encourage them to know the Lord. But if, they, if the other person walks away from you, you can let them go if they don't want to have anything with you. That's what he's saying. But as far as you're concerned, if they're willing to stay in that relationship, keep working with them, keep trying to convert them, Keep inviting them and showing them what it means to live for Christ. Yeah. Now, one point of clarification. That's not an encouragement or an invitation to enter into relationships with unbelievers. This is assuming the marriage took place when both were unbelievers and one becomes converted. It's not an invitation to say, go ahead and, and date unbelievers, get into those relationships um, you know, and then maybe you can convert them in marriage, both practically and experientially. That does not happen very often. There is a lot there, and we're running out of time, so let me just hit some summary points that I think we should highlight and take from this text. Uh, first of all, again, that reminder that as followers of Christ, we have a different sexual ethic from the world. Uh, that should be abundantly clear after reading these two texts. And connected to that is the broader idea that I haven't really drawn out yet, but that God cares about that part of your life. He cares about every part of your life. And as a part of your life, that too should be used to glorify and honor God. The difference being that much sex is restricted. Anything that is more than or outside of the bond of marriage between one man and woman is not permissible, but that doesn't mean that sex itself is forbidden or bad. Within marriage, it is good, it is blessed, and it is a beautiful way of bonding. Having said that, to be single is also good, and to be married is good. Marriage, then, is significant uh, that's the last point. Don't treat it lightly or casually and easily engage in divorces. A lot of challenging things for us, and so let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray for our marriages and for our testimonies. Lord God and Heavenly Father, the standard of the Corinthian church seems so familiar to us of casual sexual relations and easy divorces. And we've seen the wreckage that that has caused in so many different lives. Lord, as those that have been bought by your blood, who are a temple of your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would live with a different perspective, that we would view all of who we are, all of our relationships, and every part of who we are as devoted to you. Lord, may that be true about our sexuality. And I pray for our marriages. I pray for those who are single, that they would use the time and the talents they have to build your kingdom, to focus on you in a way that married people can't. May they be able to be welcomed and supported and encouraged in our church. I pray for those who are married, 
for the challenges and the joys of marriage that the world would look at the marriages of our church and recognize in it that we are living with a different standard. And then, Lord, we pray for future generations, especially in a world where there is so much misunderstanding and, and so much uh, wrong and, and hurtful thinking in these areas that the light that we show through our example would be an encouragement to others uh, to turn and, and surrender to you uh, as we have been called as well. So we give you our all. We pray so in Jesus' name. Amen.